And today is our last day of our current sermon series titled God's at War. And you know that for the past several Sundays, we've been talking about idolatry. And the Bible says, choose this day whom you will serve. So there's a choice that we have to make. There's some choosing that has to happen in our lives. Now, often in the church, we focus on the choice that we make on the day of our salvation. And that's an important choice, a significant choice. It is probably the most important choice you'll ever make. But it is in that moment that the real journey begins. You see, being a Christian is much more than just a one-time choice. Because following Jesus and, and putting Jesus on the throne of our life is a daily choice. And let's face it, if we're really honest, there are actually multiple times throughout each and every day when we have to choose who or what it is we are going to worship. We ask ourselves questions like, am I going to worship the Lord God or have I made my spouse or another significant relationship in my life first place? Or am I going to worship the Lord God or am I going to worship money? Am I going to worship the Lord God or am I going to worship some kind of physical pleasure? Am I going to worship the Lord God or am I going to worship my career or, or what other people think about me? You know, the list is long. It goes on and on and on. But every day we have a choice. And when we start to see life through the lens of will I worship the Lord or will I worship something else, then and only then do things begin to come into focus do things begin to get very clear? In Luke chapter 18, we see a man who faces this choice in a very direct and a very specific way. I'm picking up in verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. There are three words that the Bible uses to describe this man. Rich, young, ruler. Two adjectives, one noun, and they all point to the fact that this is one very successful person, a person of power. And what Jesus is going to do in this passage is put himself 
in direct competition with what this man loves so much. Jesus is going to say to this man, you choose. And as we think about this passage, I think it will challenge each of us too. This rich young ruler had accumulated, hadn't he? He had achieved, he had accomplished. I think if he were here in worship with us this morning, he would fit in very nicely. I don't think we would notice him. He wouldn't stand out at all. The rich young ruler was worshiping the God of power. Luke chapter 18, verse 18 says, a certain ruler... But Matthew's account, Matthew also tells this story in his gospel, points out that he was a young ruler. So think about it. This guy has achieved a lot early on in his life. We're told that he was rich, that he had wealth. And so it becomes evident to us really quickly that this is a driven man a man who wants to be on top, a man who wants to be successful. He's clearly a person of power. And he's probably recognized by people in the crowd as a man who has authority. And so we find this man's voice rising over all the other voices in the crowd of the people that have gathered around Jesus. And the man asks Jesus, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'll give this man some credit. Let's face it. If there's one question that you can ask Jesus, that's a pretty good question to ask, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to live forever? But wait a minute and stop and really think about it. Even the way the man asks this question begins to reveal to us the God that he worships. The way he phrases the question, what must I do? You know, who, people who struggle with the gods of success and power always want to be the source of their own salvation. And the word the man uses here for inherit could just as easily be translated as acquire or even to earn. And this is one of the reasons that we're drawn to the gods of success. Because they allow us to put our hope in our own accomplishments. To put our hope in our own achievements. To think that we can somehow earn salvation. We can make success, even spiritual success, a savior for us. And then Jesus doesn't seem to be very necessary to us. Because look at everything we've been able to accomplish on our own. This is one of the reasons why the most successful people are some of the hardest people to reach with the good news of the gospel. For the power they have goes to their head, and there's this wall of self-sufficiency around their hearts. 
in order for them to respond to Christ and to become a Christian, they have to take that God off the throne of their heart. And that God is, in fact, themselves. It is very hard to take yourself off the throne of your heart. It's hard to admit weakness. It's hard to admit that you need help. It's hard to admit that you're unable, especially for a highly driven, successful person. That's why TV personality Bill Mayer, when he was asked about the crucifixion, said, I just don't get the thought of somebody else cleansing me of my sins. It's ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me. I can cleanse myself. No, you can't. You can't earn it. And that's why when Warren Buffett donated 85% of his $44 billion fortune to charity, he said, there are a lot of ways to get to heaven. No, there isn't. But this is a pretty great way, he said. I mean, what is he saying? He's saying, I can do it. I'm successful enough. I can earn my way on my own. So this is very difficult. The only way to have victory over the God of power is to admit defeat. And yet it is this God, the God of power, that keeps us from admitting defeat. And so these gods are at war within us. It's a power struggle. In verse 19, Jesus goes right to the heart of this man's question. Jesus asks, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. Honor your father and mother. And in verse 21... Here is how the man responds. He says, I have kept all these commands since I was a boy. I think Jesus was trying to help him with the appropriate response. I think the man should have said something more like, I'm not good. I haven't been able to keep all those commands. I can't do it. No one can do it. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, oh yeah, I've done all those things since I was a boy. And what this man is doing is what many of us in the church can get all caught up in especially for those of us who feel like we have made it or are successful. And while success for you may not be something that you feel too caught up in, like you're, maybe you're not worried about job titles, maybe you're not worried about your financial status or even your prestige, 
it is still very possible for you to make spiritual success a false god. Just like the man in our text, when you keep all the religious rules, it makes it very difficult for us to see that we are, in fact, in need of a Savior. And so you, you can make your religious rules keeping a functional Savior where you say, look, I can be spiritually successful. And that's where you begin to place your confidence. You begin to think that's where my security is found. That is my Savior. Maybe you do keep all the rules. You're in church every time the doors are open or the lights are on. You read your Bible. You memorize Scripture. You pray. You fast. All of those are good things. Maybe you even add to those things some of your own rules. But like this man, we must not have put our confidence in our spiritual success. I have kept all of these since I was a boy, he said. And then in verse 22, Jesus takes aim at the God on this man's throne, the primary God on the throne of this man's heart. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. My friends, this passage is not really all about his wealth. This is about correction from Jesus. This is about what is controlling this man's life. And so what are some of the signs that the God of power is taking or has taken control of your life? We can ask ourselves some questions to get at the heart of that. You might ask yourself the question, am I defensive? Am I prideful? Do you rarely accept correction or ask other people to forgive you? This guy went away sad because he couldn't accept the correction that Jesus was giving him. Another idol replaced God, and in his sadness, that idol spoke loud and clear. Do you love discipline? The man's answer was no. But my friends, God's correction is so good. And it comes from the heart of God, which is so good. Think about this young ruler. He asked the Son of God, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gave him specific guidance as it pertained to him. But he couldn't hear it. He didn't hear it. He wouldn't hear it. It bounced right off of him. And he walked away sad from the best advice for his eternal soul. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Don't you just love the bluntness of the Bible sometimes? I do. I think I need to hear it phrased that way. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. 
A second sign that the gods of power are taking control of your life is when you are ungrateful or discontent. When you have the attitude that the world or even God owes you something, that is a sign. When you find yourself rarely saying a genuine word of thanks to people who have helped you or thank you to God. When we are rarely content with ourselves, that begins to spill over into other areas of our life. First Chronicles 16.34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see, God gets the credit for formation in us and for transformation in us, and this helps dethrone the God of success and power. A third sign that the gods of power have taken over your life is when you are jealous or selfish. When we want other people to celebrate our victories, but we don't take the time to celebrate theirs with them. James 3.16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Another sign that the gods of power have taken control is when you have to stay busy, when you feel self-reliant, when getting a higher salary, or having more authority, or seeking more and more and more respect from other people keeps you busy day and night. When we rarely stop to remember who is really in charge, like Psalm 46.10 says, be Still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So how do we keep things in perspective? How do we begin to cultivate this perspective, God's perspective? How do we get a healthy view of power and not one that becomes idolatry? King David said in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, Indeed, everything comes from you, God, and we have simply given back to you what is yours. I mean, think about it. Here is the most powerful man in all of Israel. No one is as wealthy as him. No one has more authority than King David. He had been found in a pasture leading sheep as a boy, and now he's been elevated to the king of all of Israel. From leading sheep to leading Israel, God chose the last guy in line and elevated him to the most powerful position. And now, after 40 years on the throne, as David is about to hand over the kingdom to his son Solomon, David demonstrated that he had come to know a great truth, that the power he'd been given was all, all for God's glory. 
He wrote, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hands are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And what King David came to learn about this truth is that the powerful person who understands this has the responsibility to reflect God's glory to those they live and work among. Think about that for a minute. Reflect on that for a moment. All the success you have in life is from God's hand. We are not self-made. At very best, it's a two-way street where we participate with God. And we see this truth also play out in the life of the Apostle Paul. Think about him for a minute. He was highly successful in life before he met Christ, wasn't he? His name was Saul. He'd trained in the best rabbinic traditions in the school of Gamaliel. A Pharisee of Pharisees, we are told. And Paul was on a career path that could have led him to become the head of the Supreme Court of Israel at that time and in that day. And then one day he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the early church. And he's struck blind and he encounters the risen and living Jesus. And his life was changed. But that change didn't come easy. Paul had power. Paul had a reputation. He had invested in a career path. And now all of that, all of that is gone. The persecutor became the persecuted. The hunter became the hunted. The Pharisee became an apostle. And while the change was not easy, God used this change to bring about incredible results. Paul would become the second most significant figure in Christian history. The early evangelist of the Christian faith spreading the good news throughout the Roman Empire. Saul laid down his Jewish power to follow Jesus, and God gave Paul a new job. He would spread the good news about Jesus, and God would inspire Paul to write letters that would become a central part of the Bible, and Paul would give God all the glory. In Philippians Paul is writing his last letter to his favorite church. And he's looking back over his life. 
And on some levels, he had lost everything that he'd once held dear. He's in prison in Rome, about to stand trial before Emperor Nero. He knows he's probably not going to survive this trial. And yet the main theme throughout this entire letter of Philippians is to rejoice in all things, even in the mess in which Paul found himself. Paul wrote, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Why would Paul do this? Why would you downplay your biggest accomplishments? Paul lost his title, his reputation, his career path. He lost it all because of Jesus, yet he still had hope. How? Paul was changed by the power of the resurrection, and so he was focused on following the new life that he had found in Jesus. Paul goes on to write, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> Paul is keeping score in a whole new way now. And it helped him overcome the loss of his present circumstance. Because he knew that God's way is so much better. He came to know that he was saved by grace through faith, and that he was being changed by Jesus. Who are you without your title, or your degree, or your position? And what do you become if you are suddenly promoted and you find yourself elevated to a whole new level of power and authority? Are you the same person? If your heart is not in the right place, you'll never be satisfied with your level of power. Is your identity in Jesus or is it in the trophy room of your life? We have to remember that the power and success of a person comes from God's hand and not from our own. I want to ask you a few questions today. And I'm going to pause after each one so you can reflect just a little bit. How would you answer this yourself? And as you reflect honestly, make sure that the God of power doesn't have a hold of you. How is your life up to now? been defined by achievement? 
how do you define your identity to others? To yourself. When do you struggle with pride the most? How well do you handle criticism from people? What is your definition of success? What drives you to be successful? And in what ways has God provided for you and equipped you to succeed in his purposes for your life? My friends, the invitation from God to us has never changed. God invites you to make him the Lord of your life. Not just parts of your life, but your entire life, the whole thing. God wants you to let him have the throne on the seat of your heart. Now, how you leave church today is all up to you. Will you walk away sad or angry like the rich young ruler? Or has Jesus softened your heart so that he has the position of glory in your life? What should our mind be like? Paul tells us Jesus shows us in Philippians chapter 2. This is what healthy, godly power looks and sounds like. This is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus used his power. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Behold the God of power. I want to worship this one true God of humility and service. This is the God that I want to bend my knee and bow to. Jesus is my Lord. And I want to be like him in every way and put him on the throne of my heart. Don't you? Don't you? Let us pray. Holy God, Holy Lord Jesus, we confess to you that we have not always made you the Lord of our life. We've not always put you on the throne where you belong. Forgive us, we pray, for those times when we have let money or pleasure or relationships or power or ourself take the place that rightfully only belongs to you. God, we give you all power, all authority, all dominion, all, all glory, all honor, and all praise, God. We place you right in the center of our hearts where you belong. Lord, help us to, to do that every day, to commit to you first thing in the morning. You are Lord of our life. And in all those moments of the day where we have decisions to make, whom will we worship this day? Help us to choose you always for lord god yours you are the only god there is and lord jesus yours is the name above every name and so jesus we give you the central place in our heart the central place in our life and help us to share the good news until every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you jesus christ our lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, Amen.